Let's turn once again to God's Word in Daniel chapter 6, and we'll read the second half of the chapter, beginning at verse 16. Daniel 6, verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Once again, this is the Word of God. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever." His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. As far the reading of God's word, may God bless that reading of his word as well as the proclamation, proclamation of his word based on this passage of scripture. Following the sermon and in response to it, we'll sing from hymn 61, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one empire had fallen and a new empire had taken its place. But despite those outward changes, political changes, despite the shifting political landscape, the position of God's people remained the same. The Lord who removed kings, who removes kings and who sets up kings, had removed the Babylonian king and had set up the Persian king. But while the world scene was defined by politics as usual, God's people remained in exile. They were facing the same challenges, they were facing the same temptations, the same trials. As a young man, Daniel had to stand firm in the face of the temptation to be assimilated, sucked in by the Babylonian Empire. And now as we come to the story that we know very well as Daniel in the lion's den, we see that even as an old man, Daniel continued to face the same assault. Tactics being employed by the enemy were adapted to a new situation. The human faces of the enemy had changed, but the test remained the same. 
Now this time Satan's war against God and his people were being fought not through the king, but through the leading officials of the kingdom. The Persian Empire was divided into provinces and, and the high officials or uh, the governors of these provinces were called satraps. And there were 120 of them. And these men had three superiors over them and Daniel was one of those superiors. And as usually happens when a government is transferred for, or power is transferred from one government to another, there remained continuity on the lower levels of the government, among the bureaucrats, we could say. And Daniel was one of the high officials that these 120 satraps were answerable to. And these men did not appreciate this state of affairs in the slightest. Now, why would that have been? Why would Daniel have been so resented by the officials under him? The description of Daniel in the opening verses of chapter 6 tell us he became distinguished above all, other, all the other high officials and satraps. An excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault. He was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. So here indeed was a rarity, a man of high integrity in high political office. Daniel, his job was to supervise these satraps, to hold them accountable, so that the king might suffer no loss. So he was a guard against corruption, and he could not be corrupted. Daniel was favored by the king. He cramped the satrap's style. They couldn't do what they wanted. And what's worse, he was this old Jewish guy. He was from among the exiles of Judah. All of which led to one simple conclusion, and that is, we need to get rid of him. And since they couldn't find any fault in him using any, any other grounds, some indiscretion, some failure, some evidence, no matter how small that Daniel wasn't everything that he said he was, they came up with a foolproof plan because they knew that whatever they could possibly do, the only thing that they could do to get rid of Daniel would be to use his law, the law of his God, against him. They knew that the only way that they could get him to disobey the king would be to force him to choose between obeying the earthly king and obeying the heavenly king. Because based on everything that we know about Daniel, the evidence of his life, the only option that they now had was to turn his own integrity against him. And because they knew that the king respected Daniel, they would have to resort to subterfuge in order to get, get, in order to get him out of the way. And so they came up with a plan. They would get the king to pass a decree that would force Daniel between denying his God or disobeying the king. And that plan was a decree that would be enforced for 30 days. During that month, all religious activity had to be specifically directed through the king. We don't know the reasoning that the satraps used to convince King Darius to make this decree. But for whatever reason, Darius was convinced to make the decree which according to the law of the Medes and the Persians could never be revoked. Now think about for a moment 
Think about the tactics that Satan was using to attack God's servant. Now, this was persecution. No one would deny it. But it's important for us to note that this wasn't, first of all, persecution at the hands of the king himself. The king was a victim of the conspiracy of the satraps just as much as Daniel himself was. The king had no quarrel with Daniel. He had no reason to persecute Daniel because of his faith. And you can see later on how the king felt absolutely, completely trapped by the decree that he had made and the results of that decree. And what's more, we need to consider what was the motivation for this persecution? Was it the fact that Daniel believed in a specific religion? Was it the fact that he worshipped the wrong god? Was that what led to him being persecuted for the cause of his faith? Well, the fact is, brothers and sisters, religion was really just an excuse for the satraps. These satraps had a vendetta. They had a personal grudge against Daniel. And it's true that that animosity was the result of Daniel's faith. But it's really because Daniel was living his faith, because Daniel was a man of integrity, of perfect integrity, because he was honest and faithful, because he didn't just go with the flow, and perhaps even because of envy. Because Daniel was blessed because of his faithfulness. Daniel was honored because of his honesty, because he was a trustworthy man. The king could trust him with the highest affairs of the land. And all of those characteristics of Daniel were the fruit of his faith. He practiced what he preached, and he did not compromise, regardless of the situation. And so Daniel faced persecution for doing good. The satraps themselves were serving as willing tools of the evil one. And they had their own personal reasons for wanting to see Daniel dead. And King Darius, for his part, he was an unwilling tool of the evil one. He didn't want to see anything bad happen to Daniel. But even so, his decree, poorly thought out, not a deliberate attack on God's people, was being used by Satan to attack God's kingdom. The enemy is subtle. His attacks can be indirect. His tactics can make use of people who may be working as his tools without even realizing it. But we need to remember that we're dealing with a crafty enemy. And we need to be aware of his wiles. And we need to stand firm in our faith regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves. And that's exactly what Daniel does. The decree comes down. The satrap's trap has been sprung. But Daniel was a consistent man. Three times a day he would pray, and he would pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And when the decree was implemented, Daniel didn't do anything special. He didn't do anything out of the ordinary at all. He didn't do anything unusual. He simply continued to do what he had always done. And he, do, he did it knowing exactly what the results would be. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, what could Daniel have done instead? Well, Daniel could have said, well, it's only 30 days. Surely I can take a 30-day break and God will understand. 
After all, I've been doing this, Daniel is in his, probably in his 90s, I've been doing this for 80-some years, it's about 90 years, and I'll do it again once this month has passed, so one month won't matter very much. There's a lot yet that I could accomplish, and if I get killed for disobeying this edict, I won't be able to do it. Yes, Daniel could have chosen to obey the edict, and he could very easily have justified that obedience, but he didn't. Or he could have made some slight changes to his regular practice. His regular practice was to very publicly and openly, obviously pray to his God. Getting down on his knees, using that very specific prayer posture, that humble, respectful posture of prayer that makes it very clear that the person is praying. And he did it in front of his window where everyone could see. Now he didn't do it in order to be seen by others. That wasn't his purpose. But he did it in order to do what King Solomon had said to do in 1 Kings chapter 8. In King Solomon's prayer on the occasion of the dedication of the temple, he said this to the Lord. He said, if they, if your people sin against you and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near... Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea. And so, Daniel was repenting and pleading with God in the land of the captors. And he was doing that, praying toward the land. But surely, you might think, for the sake of the peace, for the sake of what other people might say or do, he could have stopped kneeling for a month. After all, this practice of praying three times a day in the direction of Jerusalem was not an express command of God. It was not an absolute requirement of God's law. Daniel could have decided to stop with the praying in front of the open window three times a day for this short period of time. He knew very well that the posture of prayer and the place of prayer weren't really the important things. What matters is the heart. He knew that. He could have prayed in secret. He could have even continued to do that three times a day, and he would have avoided trouble. He would have appeared to be obeying the king's edict, and a month would pass by pretty quickly anyway. But he didn't. He knew that he had to obey God rather than man. He knew that the decree was unjust and for whatever reason it was implemented. He knew that the Lord's claim on him by far outweighed whatever claim a human decree had over his actions and his behavior. And so he just continued to do what he had done so faithfully over the decades. He remained faithful and he entrusted himself to God. As Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that is exactly what Daniel did. Now Daniel knew exactly what disobeying the king's edict would mean for him. He had received no personal message from God saying, Daniel, don't worry. If anything happens to you, I will deliver you. If you get thrown into the den of lions, I'll make sure the lions don't eat you up. 
like his three companions before they had been thrown into the fiery furnace, he knew that God could either deliver him in a miraculous way or he could suffer and die a horrible death. But Daniel's primary allegiance was to the God of heaven and to his decrees. His primary obedience was to God's law, the truly unchanging law of the unchanging God of heaven, and not to the changing decrees of men who imagine that their word is law, that their decrees are unalterable like the Medes and the Persians. And for Daniel, if that obedience would lead to death, so be it. Because Daniel certainly knew the words of Psalm 56, the verses 3 and 4, and he lived out that confession Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can flesh do to me? Nothing. Daniel knew the truth of the Lord's, Lord Jesus' message in Luke chapter 12. Even though he lived hundreds of years before the incarnation, where the Lord Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Now, the king, whose edict could not be rescinded, he grew frantic. And there's more than a little irony here because the all-powerful king whose word was law could do nothing to overturn a decree that he didn't want to enforce. And so he tries all day to try to rescind the decree, but he can't find a loophole. And so, however reluctantly, he executes the sentence. He has Daniel cast into the den of lions. He marks a seal on the door with his signet ring to ensure that the execution is, is carried out and he returns to his palace. And then once in his palace, he spends a sleepless night fasting before returning to the lion's den early the next morning. And it appears that as he returns, he still had some faint hope. Daniel had obviously been a shining beacon of light in Darius' kingdom. He had borne witness to the living God, and Darius had obviously clearly been impressed by Daniel and his God if not converted. And so, verse 20, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, declaring, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And what happens next must have shocked and amazed everyone who was there, because from the depths of the lion's den comes the voice of Daniel. And Daniel addresses Darius respectfully with that respectful greeting, O king, live forever. And he explains how the Lord had delivered him, how he had sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. And they have not harmed me, he says, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, Daniel's obedience to the Lord had led him to disobey the king's edict, but that act of open disobedience did not make Daniel guilty of a sin against the fifth commandment. He declares his innocence. And it's interesting and important to note that he declares his innocence not only before God's law, but also his innocence before the king. No harm 
was found in him. No, far, no harm was found on him as a result of being in the lion's den because he had trusted in his God. So the tables were turned. The men who had put King Darius in this impossible situation in order to get rid of Daniel, they faced the execution that they had tried to inflict on Daniel. So they, not only they, but together with their wives and their children, were brought and they were cast themselves into the den of lions. And these lions, who had spent the night without food, their mouths had been stopped by God's angel to protect God's faithful servant. By now they were hungry. And so they overpowered their victims and tore them to pieces before they had even reached the bottom of the den. So justice, real justice, divine justice was done. The faithfulness of Daniel, God's servant, was rewarded and the treachery of those wicked men was punished. Now we know, we know from history that when the righteous suffer because they refuse to be conformed to this world, that things don't always work out this way. There are many, many examples throughout the history of the church of faithful believers who have suffered and died horrible deaths because they refused to renounce their faith. You may have heard the very well-known story of Polycarp from the early, early New Testament church who was burned at the stake in the arena for refusing to renounce King Jesus. And he declared in the arena as he was about to die, that the Lord Jesus had been faithful to him for all of these years, that he himself was in his 90s. The Lord Jesus, my king, has been faithful to me all of these years. How can I possibly deny him now? And then more recently, the story of Guido de Bre, the writer of our Belgian Confession. He was hanged for the sake of his faith. But he, while imprisoned, awaiting his execution, used his time to continue to proclaim the gospel even to his captors and even to his accusers. Now these faithful men were not rescued, delivered from the mouths of the lions that attacked them. They suffered horribly and they died. But they and many others like them faced death. How? With songs of praise on their lips. Because they knew that in the end, God's justice would prevail. They knew that those who had so brutally persecuted God's church would ultimately face the wrath of God, which is infinitely worse than the wrath of any mere human being could ever be. And as the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Brothers and sisters, the evidence of church history, the evidence of the current state of the church and the world proves the truth of these words. Righteous people suffer for the sake of the gospel because the gospel is, by its very nature, a threat to the powerful. The good news of King Jesus is a dangerous rival to the utopian false gospels of the totalitarians of this world. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ is understood to be dangerous competition for people's loyalties and a danger to society. So what happens? Well, what happens is this, where the gospel is proclaimed boldly and faithfully, human dictators are afraid. 
where the lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, men who see themselves as being lords and saviors feel threatened. They feel the pressure. And where citizens of God's kingdom refuse to bend the knee before the gods of this world, they are declared to be enemies of the human race, enemies of the state, a danger to peace and security, people who put the world in danger because of their refusal to conform. But where Christians suffer for the sake of Christ, when they, with the apostles, can rejoice because they are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name, we read in Acts chapter 5, the world sees and the seed is spread. That rock from chapter 2 of Daniel, that rock not, not cut with human hands, it continues to roll on and as it rolls, it continues to grow. And so the kingdom of darkness is beaten back, even when it does its worst to snuff out the light. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus. The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness was not able to overcome it. The enemies of the Lord Jesus, what did did they see him as? They saw him as a threat to their position in the nation. We're going to lose our place. They saw him as a threat to their program of national reform. When his beaten and bloody body was tossed into the tomb and laid in the tomb, they thought they had won. But three days later, it became clear the enemy had been defeated. The Lord's angel stopped the mouth of the lions and gave Daniel new life. But for Jesus Christ, the victory was all the, all the greater because death itself was defeated. And because of his death, the seed of the kingdom would continue to flourish as it is to this day. And so, brothers and sisters, we can be challenged. We must be challenged. We can also be encouraged, greatly encouraged, by the story of Daniel persecuted, by the story of Daniel at prayer, by the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Challenged, first of all, because we need to ask ourselves some very hard questions, both individually and as the church. And the first thing we need to ask is this, is our witness to the world as clear as Daniel's witness was? Daniel's record was absolutely clean. There was not a mark on it. There was nothing either obvious or hidden in Daniel's life that his enemies could use against him. They couldn't dig up some old scandal from his youth. Nothing. They knew exactly how Daniel would respond if his ability to pray to his God were to be impeded. How can the same be said for us? And if we were confronted with the choice that faced Daniel, how would we respond? Would we just go with the flow? Would we just not make make waves and then justify our lack of radical obedience by any number of excuses or reasons? Brothers and sisters, we know These are not theoretical questions for us anymore. And so when we make our decisions about how we must respond to government decrees, these are the kinds of things that we need to seriously and prayerfully consider. Now that's a challenge. But with that challenge comes great encouragement. 
Daniel stood firm and he boldly continued to worship God even when threatened with death. And he did all this even though as we read from Hebrews chapter 11, he did not receive what was promised since God had promised something better, provided something better for us that apart from us, they, men like Daniel from the old covenant, should not be made perfect. But our assurance, our hope, our confidence can be all the greater because we live on the other side of the cross. We not only have that wonderful example of Daniel, we also have that even more wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that example in itself is so much more than just an example to follow. But it's actually the means by which we can face the lions in our own life. Like many of our brothers and sisters in the world today, we may one day have to face death for the co- because of our faith. And even now on a daily basis, we face challenges. Challenges that are not as drastic as death, of course, but which are much more subtle and perhaps even more dangerous to us spiritually. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, we can face those challenges. We can rejoice even while we are suffering. We can joyfully obey God, come what may, because we know that even if we aren't rescued from the lions of this life, we will have been faithful with the little that we, with, with what we have been given. And we will receive God's gracious reward, which is eternal. Brothers and sisters, we can and we must dare to be like Daniel. Because Daniel's God, who stopped the mouths of lions, is the God who defeated death and the grave. And he is our God. Amen.